Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 32. As usual, we have two amazing stories for you today, so let's get right to it, shall we? Our first tale today is The Swan Pilot, by none other than the indomitable Ellie Modisett Jr., who is the New York Times best-selling author of more than 65 fantasy and science fiction novels, including four fantasy series, especially The Saga of Recluse and The Imager Portfolio, a number of short stories, and numerous technical and economic articles. His novels have sold millions of copies in the US and worldwide, and have been translated into 11 different languages. His first story was published in Analogue in 1973, and his most recent book, Heritage of Sayador, was just released. His next book, out next March, will be Madness in Solidar. You can read more by following the link on the triple F. It's narrated for us today by Gareth Stack. He is a writer and performer who creates comedy series and documentaries for Irish radio. He's been published in Analog Music magazine, This Is Not Where I Belong, In Transit, Piranha magazine, Explore magazine, Blue Island and Albedo One. You can find him on the web at garethstack.com and on Twitter at Gareth Stack. So, let's hear The Swan Pilot by L. E. Modisett Jr. I eased myself into the control couch of the ISS WB Yates making certain that all the connections were snug and that there were no wrinkles in anything. Then I pressed the single stud that was manual, and the clamshell descended. You could call a transship, a carad, or a cockle, 
guided by will across the sea of endless space. You could, and it would be technically wrong. Technically wrong, but impressionistically right, and certainly the way it feels when you're alone in the blackness, balancing the harmonics and threading your way from the light matter and dark matter and fairy dust of overspace, guiding the ship and all it contains out from light and into darkness, and then on to another minute island of solid warmth once again. Or you could refuse to call it a ship at all, nor the ocean it sails a sea. There is no true sea, the theorists say, just a mist of the undermatter that fills over space, a mist that stretches to eternity, in which float the brilliant blocks of light matter that can incinerate you in a nano-instant, or the solid, dark blocks upon which you can be smashed into dust motes tinier than the stitches on a leprechaun's shoes. A pilot is more like a light-blinded nightbird with gossamer wings that soars across the mists of undermatter against and through the darkness and light that are but representations of the universe above. Or perhaps those denizens of overspace perceive us as underspace, blocky and slow and awkward. I could call every flight a story of the twelve ships of the Tyrolear, and that would be right as well. How many ways are there to explain the inexplicable? Shall I try again? None of what I experience would make sense to, say, Francois Chirac or Ahmed Farzi, and what they would experience would not make sense to me, either. But I'm Sean Shannon Henry, born in Slago and a graduate of Trinity, and in the universe of the trans ships that has made all the difference. For the sky roads are not the same for each of the swan pilots, although the departures and the destinations and the routes are exactly the same. Nor can there be more than one pilot captain on a ship. A second pilot wouldn't help, because if a pilot fails for a nano-instant, the ship is lost as well. Oh, the scientists have their explanations, and I'll leave those with them. With the clamshell down, I was linked to all the systems, from the far scanners, to the twin fusactors, to the accumulators, to the converters and the translation generators, and from the passenger clamshells to the cargo holds. I ran the checklist, and everything was green, and both cargo and the handful of passengers were secured. Alora. I pulsed to the second, who handles cargo and passengers from the clamshell in the compartment aft of mine. Systems are go. Ready for departure, Captain. A last scan of the systems, and I pulsed control. High control, Yates. Systems green. Ready for delocking and departure this time. Yates, wait one for traffic in the orange. Yates standing by. Another wedge shape, formed of almost indestructible adamante composite so solid in the underspace we inhabit, slipped out from the glowing energy of Hermes Station, out towards the darkness up and beyond, where it would rise through the flames of translation, phoenix swan-like, to make its way to another distant stellar hearth, and there untranslate and glide like a falling brick back into the safe dullness of the reality we require. Yates, clear to delock and depart. Control delocking and departing this time. After releasing the couplers 
and giving the faintest touch of power to the steering jets, I eased the Yates, a mere thousand tons of composite and cargo, away from Hermes Station, that islet of warmth in the black sea of oblivion that is space. Like a quarrel arrowing through space, where there is no up or down, the Yates and I accelerated away from Hermes Station and the world of Silverstone. Once we were clear of satellites and traffic, I spread the photon nets like the butterfly soul of the proud priest of ancient Ireland. Stand by for translation. Ready for translation, answered Alora. I twisted the energies pouring into the translator. The entire universe shimmered, then turned black, and the Yates and I fused into one entity, no longer pilot and ship, but a single black swan flying through deeper darkness. A deep chime rolled from below, and crystalline notes vibrated from above, shattered and fell like ice flakes across my wings, each flake sounding a different note as it struck my wings, and as each note added to the melody of the flight, it left a pinprick of hot agony behind. I continued to fly, angling for the distant droning beacon that was Alustra, with the sure knowledge that there would be at least one timeless interlude. One was standard, two difficult. With three interludes began high stress on both the ship and the pilot, and a loss level approaching 50%. Only one transship had been known to survive four interludes. The pilot had not. Unseen symbols crashed, and the grav waves of a singularity shook me. Black pinnae shivered from my wings, wrenched out by the buffeting of a black hole somewhere in the solid underspace I flew above, between. Brilliant blue, blinding blue enfolded me, and passed, and I stood on the edge of a rock, wingless, now just a man in a Macintosh, looking at the grey waves sullenly pounding on the stone-shingled beach less than two yards away. A rhyme came to mind, and I spoke it to the waves on that empty beach. Captain Sean went to the window and looked at the waves below. Not a mermaid or a marrow, nor fish nor ship would he know. So you'd not know a marrow, is that what you're saying, captain of a ship? That is not a ship. I turned. To my right, where there had been no one, was a man sitting on a spur of rock. Although he wore brown trousers and a tan iron sweater, his webbed feet were bare, and he was not exactly a man, not with a scaly green skin, green hair, and deep-set red eyes that looked more like those of a pig than a man. He had a cocked red hat tucked under his arm. It seems to me that I know you, by your skin and hair, but mostly by the hat. For a drowning sailor, you're a most bright fellow, bright enough to ask your name, I answered, not terribly worried about drowning. Overspace captains drown all the way through every voyage. We drown in sensation and in the uncanny tyranny of underspace that presses in on the overspace where we translate from system to system, world to world. Tis Kumra, or close enough. He smiled, and his teeth were green as well. Beside his feet was a contraption of wood and mesh. The mesh was not metal, but it glimmered as if it was silver coated in light. It probably was. And your name is? 
Sean. A fine Irish name that is. He laughed. A fine lobster pot that is, I replied, although I knew it was no such thing. I prepared for this moment as well as for many others, for to fly, sail over space, a pilot must know all the stories and all his or her personal archetypes, that is, if he or she doesn't want to drown out there, or here. I had to remember that interludes were real, as real as life under space, and just as able to kill me and all the passengers who rode on my wings. A lobster pot, that's what others have called it, but you, Sean, Shannon, Henry, would you not know better? The green eyes glittered. I stepped closer to him, but on the side away from the soul cage. How old are you? As old as my great-grandfather Patrick. I'm older than any dead man, and any that swim in the sea. He's not dead. In fact, I said as I stepped closer, he's in his second century now, and feeling like he still has years ahead of him. You would not be thinking I was that young now, would you? He's older than fine brandy, I pointed out, concentrating hard before producing an earthen jug. That was a trick it had taken years to master, making objects seem real in overspace, because interludes are short, long as they sometimes seem. That's not brandy, not an oral jar like that. Still, he cocked his head to the side. I wouldn't know brandy. This is old-time putteen, and I'm the mayor of Dungarvan, as you wish it. I pulled the cork and presented the jug. He did not take it, not immediately. I bring you a gift, and you would refuse it, I asked gently. Surely you would not wish to waste good spirits. I should have made the punish illusion, but the overspace elementals usually didn't catch them. You are a hard man with words, Captain Sean Henry, but you are drowning, and drown you will. But he took the jug, and so heavy was it that it took both his green hands. In the moment that he had both of them on the jug, I lunged and grabbed the cocked hat. The jug vanished, but the hat did not, and I held it with both hands in mind. The green eyes glittered with a copper-iron heaviness and malice. Clever you are, Captain Henry, clever indeed. I only ask to keep what's mine, within mine, and nothing of yours. So be it. The marrow cocked his head. Blazing blue flashed across me, and once more I was spin-soaring through darkness, gongs echoing. I almost thought of the gong-tormented wine-dark sea, but pushed that away. An interlude in Byzantium would not be the one I'd enjoy or relish, and probably would not survive. It wasn't my archetype, even with the Yates connection. Instead I slip-sled sideways, letting the fairy dust that could have been air, but was not, swirl over my wings as I banked around a sullen column of antiqued iron that was the gravity well of a star that could have shredded me into fragments of a fugue or syllables of a sonnet. The subsonic harp of Tara, or Kruchon, shivered through my bones and composite sinews. Once more I soared towards the shimmering veil that was and was not, resetting us on the heading toward the now less distant beacon that was Alustra. And once more the brilliant interlude blue splashed across me. I stood under the redstone archway of a cloistered hall. The only light was the flickering flame of a bronze lamp set in a bracket attached to a column several metres away. Before me stood a priest, a stern and white-faced cleric. 
As any good Irish lad, I waited for the good father to speak, although I had my doubts about whether he was, first, truly a reverend father, and second, good. His eyes surveyed me, going up and down my figure, taking in the uniform of the trans-ship captain, before he spoke a single word. "'Your soul is in mortal danger, my son. You have sold it for the trappings of that uniform, and for the looks that others bestow upon you.' It's truly hell when the elementals of overspace, or their abilities, combine with your own weaknesses." I swallowed, trying to regain a certain composure, trying to remind myself that I was in an interlude and that other souls and bodies depended on me. With all your schooling and knowledge, you do not even know that you have a soul, he went on. Knowledge is a great thing, but it is not the end in life. It can be but a mess of pottage received in return for your birthright. Mixed archetypes and myths were dangerous, very dangerous, in overspace interludes. If I do good, I said, does that not benefit everyone, whether I know if I have a soul or not? Words, those are but words. Words are more powerful than that, but following such logic would just make matters worse. I concentrated on the figure in Friar's Black before me. Truth can be expressed in words. Souls are more than words or truth. You are drowning and unless you accept that soul that is and contains you, you will be eternally damned. His voice was warm and soft and passionate and caring, but it almost got to me. I am my soul. That was certainly true. You risk drowning and relinquishing that soul with every voyage across the darkness, the priest went on. Others depend on me, father, I pointed out. That is true, he replied. Yet you doubt that you have a soul, and for that your soul will go straight to hell when you die, and that will never be when you wish. I have also doubted hell. Doubt does not destroy what is. Denial, my son, does not affect reality. Then reality does not affect denial, I countered. If I have been good, whether I believe in souls or hell or the life everlasting, my soul should not be in mortal danger. If I have been evil, then belief in heaven and hell should not save that soul from punishment I deserve. Are you so sure that you have been that good? The dark eyes probed me, and the flickering lamp cast doubt across me. I am not sure that I have been evil, nor that you should be the judge of the worth of my soul. Who would you have judge your soul if you have a soul? Simple as it sounded, it wasn't. The question implied so much more. No man can judge himself, let alone another, I said slowly. No being can judge another unlike himself, for the weight of life falls differently upon each. The priest stepped forward, and I thought I saw the ghost of wings spreading from his shoulders. The trouble was, in the dimness, I couldn't tell whether they were ghostly white or ghostly black. If you will not be judged, then you will be in limbo for all eternity, and that is certainly not pleasant. It didn't sound that way, but it was better than hell, even if I didn't believe in hell, at least, not too much. Well, perhaps I need more time to consider. You won't have to make that judgment, and neither will I or anyone else, if nothing happens to me right now. So be it, 
The father made a cryptic gesture. There was a stillness without even background subsonics or shredded notes from underspace filtering up. Then blue lightning flashed and for a moment I could sense and feel overspace. I had been slewed off course, as can happen in an interlude, particularly one that slips into the pilot's weaknesses, but I banked and swept back toward Elustra and the ever closer but not close enough beacon. That was about all I got done, because the deep swell of a pulsed singularity rolled towards us like a black silver cloud. With it came another sheet of glaring, brilliant blue. Three interludes? That was the only thought I managed before I found myself standing in a dim room. A woman stood in front of me. From behind, what was most noticeable was her hair, although I saw little of it. But what I did see was red and tinted with sun, where it slipped out from the black silk scarf that covered her head. She faced two men in black. They sat at a round table that groaned under the weight of the gold coins stacked there. Yet, with all that weight of coin, not a stack trembled. They looked up at me, and their black eyes glittered in their pale faces above their combed black beards. They dismissed me, and their eyes went to the woman who had not even noticed me. The two looked almost the same, as if they were brothers, and I suppose that they were, in a manner of speaking. The only thing that caught my eyes was that the one on the right wore a wide silver ring, and on the one on the left, a gold band. The woman was speaking, and her voice was music, silver, gold, yet warmer, and with a core of strength. You have stolen from me. That does not trouble me. What troubles me is that you stole from me, so that the poor would be forced to sell their souls to you. We are but traitors. No one is required to come to us, the man on the right smiled politely, then added a gold coin to the pile closest to him. Any man or woman who has a child that is hungry or suffers and loves that child is required to come to you. Anyone with a soul that is worth your gold will come to you to spare another from suffering. Your words are meaningless. They're false, she laughed. I liked her, even though I hadn't seen her face. Why are you here? asked the trader on the left, pointing to me. Because I am. That was the only response that made sense. The woman turned to me, and I understood who she was, if not precisely why I was with her and the two emissaries from the Netherlands. I could also see why the old tales called her a saint with eyes of sapphire. Her eyes were deep, so deep I wanted to swim in them, and I had to swallow to recall I was in an interlude, a third interlude, and fifty percent of those were fatal. You, are you one of them? No, Countess. I am Captain Sean Shannon Henry. I paused. You are the Countess Catherine O'Shea? Catherine would be more accurate. I murmured words. From where they came, I could not have said. The Countess had a soul as pure as unfallen snow, and a mind that no evil could know. I am not that good, and Gort Forge is not so poor as this place here. You are a saint, I said. No, I care that people do not barter their souls to live, or keep their children from suffering and hunger. That's all. Had I done that? Bartered my soul for something? For what? Interludes have a meaning, 
That's why they're so deadly. If you don't have interludes, the ship never leaves the departure system. If you have too many, it never arrives at its destination, or any destination any have yet discovered. Her eyes softened. Souls ride with you, don't they? In a way, I admitted. We will add those he's trying to save to the price for yours, offered the second trader, the one with the gold ring on his finger. No, the words were out before I thought. You would doom them then, said the first trader. No, I would doom your bargain. You cannot, Kathleen Catherine said. I have made it, and I stand by it. You're a saint, I said again. You had best find that out in the world that counts. She vanished. I felt my mouth open. That was the first time that had ever happened to me in an interlude. Your soul is not worth a thousand part of hers, announced one of the traders. But we will carry you into the depths with us until the soul of the countess is tendered to the one who paid for it. A bargain under duress is not a valid sale, I pointed out. A soul must be tendered freely. She tendered hers freely. She did not. As she said, anyone with a soul of worth would tender it to prevent another suffering. And the one who is already has judged that you cannot have her soul. Both looked at me, and I felt as though I had been skewered by those black eyes. And what of your soul, Captain Sean Shannon Henry? Your soul has not been so judged. What is it worth to you? Hers and more. What I meant was not what I said, because what I meant was that my soul had worth, but, as they had already judged, not nearly the worth of hers. Not yet, anyway. Something happened, because, before I could say more, the men in black had vanished, and so had Countess Kathleen or Catherine O'Shea, and I was in the depths of the ocean, cold and black, water weighing in my lungs with such force that all the air I had breathed was forced out in an explosive gasp. With that, brilliant blue swept across over space, and black lightnings shattered the blueness. Then I was again flying free, banking ever so slightly to avoid the singularity below my left wingtip. Somewhere deep within my swan form, every part of me ached as I scanned the darkness of overspace, glad that I had emerged from the interlude, but pushing away the questions as I searched for the beacon that was Illustra. I discovered that we had almost oversoared it and swung into a downward spiral, ignoring the flutter of dislodged pinnae as we dropped lower and lower until I could feel the power of the beacon vibrating my sinews' feathers. Only then did I untwist the energies flowing through the translation generators. Instantly, the black swan was no more, and the Yates and I were but pilot and ship. I passed out briefly from the pain when we re-emerged into underspace, norm space for those of us who live in it. Captain, Captain, Alora's voice finally got to me. I'm here. Rough translation. I pulsed, checking and then deploying the photon screens. Rough. A sense of laughter, ragged laughter, came across. The Yates isn't making any more translations without some serious work. I hadn't made the evaluations, but the feelings from my body, and the fact that not all the far screens and diagnostics were even working, suggested a certain truth to her words. Still, 
I'd untranslated to closer than normal, and that was good, given our situation. Augusta Station, this is ISS WB Yates, inbound from Silverstone. Authentication follows. I pulsed off the authentication, trying to ignore the aches that seemed to cover most of my clamshelled body, as well as the tightness in my chest, and the feeling that I was still drowning. There wasn't any immediate answer. There never is, not with the real-time speed of light delay. My head continued to ache, and I had to boost the oxygen to my self-system as we headed down and in system. It was more than a few standard hours before the Yates, with passengers and cargo intact, docked at Augusta Station, the trans-ship terminal for the planet Jail of the New Roman Republic. The pilot and ship were less intact than the passengers and cargo. Captain Henry, Augusta Control here. External diagnostics indicate extensive maintenance required. Interrogative medical attention. I scanned the ship's systems once again, although I knew control was right. The fuse actors were both close to redline, and the translation generators were totally inoperative. Two of the far screens were junk. As for me, my nanetics had told me more than once that I was bruised over 21.4% of my body, that I had more than a few subdural hematomas, and that 20% of my lung function was impaired. But there hadn't been anything I could have done until we were inlocked. Affirmative. Class 3 removal requested. Class 2 would have meant half my body would have needed attention. Class 1 would have come from the ship's systems, or Allura, because Class 1 med alerts meant the pilot was dead, or close to it. As I waited for the med crew and shuttle, I downlinked to the Roman info systems, running through the search functions as quickly as I could. Then I went up a level, for the information on the other worlds of the new Roman Republic. There was no Gort Forge on jail, or any of the other Roman worlds, nor anything resembling it in name. That didn't matter. It existed somewhere, and so did the Countess Catherine O'Shea. Of both, I was certain. The universe is thought, wrapped in rhyme and music, and that's why the best pilots hold the blood of the Emerald Isle. We know what we are, and each time we fly, we have to discover that anew. For, as a pilot, I have always held to my own two beliefs. First, science is not enough to explain all that is in the wide, wide universe, and without magic, science is as useless as a man without a soul. Second, so long as there are Irish, there will always be an Ireland. After the med team rebuilds me again, I will fly the swan ship that is the Yates to as many worlds as I can, and must, until I find the Countess Catherine. With whom else could a swan pilot trust his found soul? Worthy of the author, don't you think? Thank you, Mr. Modisset, for allowing us to produce it. Our second story today is a lovely tale called The Stone Man by Nancy Cress. Nancy is the author of 33 books, including 26 novels, four collections of short stories and three books on writing. Her work has won five nebulas, two Hugos, a Sturgeon and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. In addition to writing... Cress often teaches at various venues around the country and abroad. In 2008, she was the Picador visiting lecturer at the University of Leipzig. Cress lives in Seattle with her husband, writer Jack Skillingstead, and Cosset, the world's most spoiled toy poodle. 
Today is actually her father's 85th birthday, so a great shout-out and congratulations from all of us here at the Triple F. You can learn more about Nancy by following the link. It's read for you today by Anthony Babington, who describes himself as a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. So, here we have it. The Stone Man by Nancy Cress. Jared Stoffel never even saw the car that hit him. He ollied off the concrete steps of the Randolph Street Rec Center down under the street and was coming down on his skateboard when wham! His butt was smacked hard enough to rattle his teeth and Jared went down. A second before the pain registered, he threw up his arms to shield his face. The birdhouse went flying. He saw it in the air, wheels spinning, a moment before his body hit the street. All at once he was smothered under a ton of stones. He couldn't breathe. He was going to die and someone was screaming, but it was mostly the rocks. God, the boulders flying to land on top of him, under him, everywhere. Everything went black. You with us yet, child? Rocks. It came out. Bugs. Jared put his hand to his face. The hand stopped an inch away on his swollen mouth. How many fingers am I holding up? Oh. What day is it? Bree day. Just rest a while. You took a nasty fall. The blurry old nurse, dressed in some stupid pants with yellow ducks on them, stuck a needle in Jared's arm and went away. When he came to again, everything was clearer. A TV on a high shelf up near the ceiling droned out some news about an earthquake someplace. An old man in a white coat sat in a chair by Jared's bed, reading. Jared tried to sit up, and the man rose and eased him back down. Just stay quiet a little longer. Where am I? Perry Street Medical Center. You got hit by a car while skateboarding, but you have nothing more than two fractured ribs and a lacerated hand. You're a very lucky young man. Oh, right. Just lousy with luck. The words came out correctly. His lips weren't nearly as swollen. The tiny room had no windows. How long had he been in here? I'm Dr. Kendall, and I need some information. What's your name, son? I'm not your son. Jared lay, trying to remember this accident. Sean. He'd been skateboarding with Sean. Sean had yelled when Jared got hit. Sean? Your name's Sean? Sean what? I'm not Sean, dumbass. He's my friend, with me. Where's Sean? The doctor grimaced. Some friend. He took off running as soon as the ambulance arrived. What were you two doing that he didn't want to get caught? Never mind, I don't want to know. But I do need to know your name. Why? To notify your parents, for one thing. Forget it. She won't come. Something moved behind the doctor's eyes. He glanced up at the TV, still showing pictures of an earthquake then returned to watching Jared closely. Too closely. 
The guy was maybe fifty, maybe sixty, with white hair. But that didn't mean he couldn't be a... Was he even really a doctor? Jared said, Hey, stop staring like that, sicko. Ah, the doctor said, sadly. I see. Damn. But I still need to know your name. For the records, we... I don't got any insurance, so you can just let me out of here now. Again, Jared tried to sit up. Lie down, son. We can't release you yet. Now, please, tell me your name. Jared. Jared what? None of your business. If he didn't say any more, maybe they'd throw him out of here. The doc said he wasn't hurt bad. He could crash at Sean's. If Ma saw him like this, she'd smash the birdhouse for sure. She- Hey! Where- where's my deck? Your what? My deck! The bird! My skateboard! Oh, I'm afraid I don't know. You mean you just left it in the street? Gone now, for sure. Ain't been a huge set of trouble to steal it. Again, that strange expression in Kendall's eyes. He said quietly, Jared, I will personally replace your skateboard, buy you a brand new and very good one, if you will answer some questions for me first. You? Buy me a new deck? For giving you what? I already told you. All you need to do is answer some questions. Nobody gives away new decks for free. I will, to you. Kendall's eyes, Jared saw, were light brown, full of some emotion Jared didn't understand. But he wasn't picking up rip-off vibes from the man. Hope surged through him. A new deck. Maybe an ABEC 4. He squashed the hope. Hope just got you hurt. Kendall reached into his pocket and drew out a wad of bills. How much does a good skateboard cost? Jared's eyes hung on the money. He could get a hawk deck. Good trucks and wheels? Two hundred dollars. Maybe the old guy didn't know what stuff cost. Kendall counted ten twenties and held them out in his closed hand. After you answer three questions. Just three? Okay. Better not try anything, perv. First, your name and address. Jared Parcel, 62 Randolph. Kendall withdrew his hand. You're lying. How did the old bastard know? Wait, don't put the money away. I'm Jared Stoffel, and I live at 489 Center Street. When he lived anywhere at all. Ma, strung out on crystal most of the time, only noticed when he screwed up, not when he stayed away. She was pretty lame about time. Kendall said, When were you born? April 6th, 1993. Closing his eyes, Kendall moved his lips silently, as if figuring something. Finally, he said, as if it mattered, Full moon. Whatever. Now the last question. How did all those stones get around you during the hit and run? What? When the ambulance arrived, you were lying on and covered with small stones. They appear to have come from a flower bed on the other side of the recreation center. How did they get with you?
A vague memory stirred in Jared's mind. Rocks. He was being smothered with rocks, and someone, him, said, Boggs. And Sean yelled something as Jared fell, something Jared couldn't remember now. Jared had thought the rocks were in his mind, something from, like, the pain of the accident. Not real, but maybe... Kendall was watching him sadly. Why sad? This old psycho gave Jared the creeps. I don't know anything about any stones. You and Sean weren't playing some game involving the stones? Throwing them at cars or something? Jesus, man, I'm thirteen, not eight. I see, Dr. Kendall said. He handed the two hundred dollars to Jared, who seized it eagerly, even though leaning forward caused pain to stab through his torso. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Jared moved his legs toward the end of the bed. Kendall eased them back. Not yet, son, I'm afraid. He looked even sadder than before. Get your hands off me. I answered your stupid questions. Yes, and the money is yours. But you can't leave yet. Not until you see one other person. I don't want to see any more doctors. It's not a doctor. I'm a doctor. Larson is a... Well, you'll see. Larson! The door opened and another man entered. This one was young. Big, tough-looking, with long hair and a do-rag. He wore a leather jacket and a gold necklace, serious gold. A dealer, maybe a gangbanger, maybe even a leader. Or a narc. He stood at the end of Jared's bed, big hands resting lightly on the metal railing, and stared, unsmiling. So is he, Doc? Yes. You sure? Never mind. I know you don't make mistakes, but... God, look at him. Look at your dumbass self, Jared said, but even to him the words sounded lame. Larson scared him, although he wasn't going to admit that. Watch your mouth, kid, Larson snarled. 
I don't like this any better than you do. But if you're one of us, then you are. Doc doesn't make mistakes. Damn it to hell, anyway. If I'm what? What am I? Jared said. A wizard, Dr. Kendall said. You're a wizard, Jared, as of now. Larson left the explanations to Kendall. With a disgusted look over his shoulder at the hospital bed, Larson stormed out, slamming the door. Jared caught the scandalized look of a passing nurse just before the door shook on its hinges. A wizard, yeah, right, Jared said. Any minute now I'm going to turn you into a pigeon. No, wait. You're already a pigeon if you believe that crap. I'm afraid it's true, Kendall said. During your accident, you summoned those rocks. The smoothest stones from the flower bed flew through the air and landed on you, under you, around you. You skidded across the pavement on them as if on ball bearings. That broke your fall, maybe saved your life. Right, anything you say. You were born under the full moon. Also a requirement, although we don't know why. You... And you're a wizard too, huh? No, Kendall said sadly. I'm not. I can spot one, is all. And so the Brotherhood uses me. Uh-huh. So you can't, like, show me something wizardy right now? And Larson left before he had to? Convenient. Nothing wizardy could be done here anyway. Not here, in the presence of metal. Not by any wizard now living. Kendall leaned forward, his hands on his knees. Magic is very old, Jared. Much older than even the most primitive civilization. It governs only the things found in nature, and it cannot operate near to the things that are not. The only reason you could summon those stones at all is because your skateboard went flying, you weren't carrying a cell phone, and you had pull-on running shorts with no zipper. You'll leave my shorts out of this, Jared said. How come I never did any magic before, huh? You tell me that. That's easy. Your accident, the ability to do magic among those who possess it at all, is only released in the presence of pain. Pain? Yes, Jared, Kendall said quietly. Everything in life costs, even magic. The price is pain. This was the first thing the old man had said that made any sense to Jared. He knew things cost. He knew about pain. But the rest of it was pure psycho bull. And bull with a reason. He said, So now you tell me I'm going to one of those wizard schools, huh? Just like in that book? Only guess what? It'll really turn out to be just another lockdown like Juvie. There's no such thing as a wizard school. All we have is the Brotherhood, and that all too inadequate to its task. Listen, this sucks. I'm out of here, man. What do I gotta sign? You're a minor. A parent must sign your release forms. Like that's gonna happen. My mom's strung out most of the time, and my dad's long gone. You wait on a parent, I'll be here forever. Where's my clothes? You can't watch me! I ain't waiting here for child services to stick me in a foster home, and I ain't listening to no more of your bull, neither. You can talk better than that when you want to, Kendall said. I've heard you do so. Here, if you're really going... No, no, your, your shoes are in that cupboard over there. Take this. It's my home address. 
You can come see me any time you want, Jared. For any reason. Don't hold your breath. He found the shoes, finished dressing, and walked out of the medical center. He had to lean twice against walls to do it, breathing deeply and fighting his own stomach. But he did it. Welcome to the Brotherhood, Jared, Kendall said sadly. Forget you, Jared said. It was a week before he could make it out of the house. He lay in his bedroom, fighting the pain, distracting himself with the songs on the radio and with the Game Boy he'd stolen three months ago. Ma had sold the Xbox, but he'd hidden the Game Boy and the radio behind the broken dishwasher, and she hadn't found them. He should have gotten painkillers before he left the clinic. The old doc would probably have given him some, but Jared hadn't thought of it. Fortunately, it was one of the times when there was food in the house. Ma's new guy, whom Jared encountered in the kitchen in his underwear, liked to eat. After a week, the bedclothes, not too clean to begin with, stank, but Jared felt better. He knew he was better because he was bored. The day after that, he dressed and went out. He didn't find anybody on the street, and he remembered that school had started. He walked to Benjamin Franklin Middle School, scowled at the security guard, and passed through the metal detector. When classes changed, kids flooded into the halls. "'Hey, Sean!' Sean Delancey glanced up from the girl he was talking to, and a strange expression crossed his face. He nodded coolly. Jared hobbled over to him. "'I'm back, man!' "'Yeah, I see. "'So what are you doing here, in school?' Sean didn't answer. He turned back to the girl, without introducing her. Jared felt his face grow hot. "'Hey, you dissing me, Sean?' "'I'm busy right now. Can't you see that?' This had never happened before. He and Sean were tight, had always been tight. The girl snickered. Jared limped away. The prick. The bastard. But he couldn't let it go. He caught Sean later, leaving school after fourth period, carrying his deck. Jared stepped out from an alley and said, "'Sean, what's wrong, man?' "'Nothing. I gotta go.' Anger and hurt made him desperate. Dude, it's me! Me! Sean stopped, turning from embarrassment to anger. Maybe, Jared suddenly thought, they were the same thing. Just leave me alone, Jared, okay? I don't need you and your lame crap. His crap? He didn't have any crap except... It, it was weird and stupid, but he couldn't think of anything else. He said quietly, testing. The stones... I don't know how you did that, but just leave me alone. Sean hurried off. So it had been the stones. And the stones had happened. They really had. Only it had been some kind of freak accident. Wind devil or something. Not any freaking magic. Forget you! He yelled after Sean. But Sean was already on his board, skimming lightly out of Jared's sight. With Kendall's two hundred dollars... Jared bought a new deck, a deluxe hawk, plus awesome trucks and wheels. He spent every day alone, in another neighborhood, painfully regaining his mobility and skill. After what happened with Sean, he didn't want to approach his other friends. And anyway, he didn't have too many other friends. Mostly, it had been him and Sean. Ma's boyfriend broke up with her, and Jared didn't want to be home with her much. She was always wailing, or else outscoring. When the boyfriend's food was gone, she barely bought more. 
Sometimes Jared's stomach growled while he practiced over and over, ollies and kickflips and fifty-fifty grinds and even a few hard flips. He sped around the neighborhood, a better one than his own, past trees turning from green to red and gold, past little kids on trikes, past bright flowers and beds edged with stones. All the stones stayed where they were supposed to. It was hunger and cold that finally made him pull out the card Dr. Kendall had given him at the clinic. Hunger, cold, and maybe loneliness, although he didn't like to admit that. The address was not far away, on Carter Street. Jared skated over, preparing an excuse in his mind. Kendall's house wasn't much. A small two-story. Weren't doctors supposed to make a lot of money? Neat bushes surrounded it, and the porch light shone cheerfully in the October dusk. Jared rang the bell and scowled. "'Hi, Doc. Something's wrong with my hand. You must not have fixed it right.' "'Come in, Jared,' Kendall said. "'Why did the guy always look so sad to see him? What a crock!' But the house was warm and smelled of meat roasting. Jared's mouth filled with sweet water. "'Let me see your hand. You had slight damage to your left transverse ligament from the stones, but it looks all right now. Would you like to stay for dinner?' "'I already ate,' Jared said, scowling more deeply. His stomach growled. "'Then have a second dinner, just to keep me company. My housekeeper just left, and she cooks a lot on Mondays, so she doesn't have to do much the rest of the week.' Kendall led the way to the tiny dining room without giving Jared a chance to answer, so he followed. The room had a big table, real curtains, a china chest filled with dishes. Kendall set a second place. Roast beef and mashed potatoes and peas and a pudding that tasted of apples. Jared tried not to gobble too hard. When he finished, he glanced out the window. A cold rain fell. That sucked. It was too easy to snap a board in the rain, and anyway, the wood got all soggy. Kendall, who had been silent throughout dinner, said, How about a game of Street Fighter? You play Street Fighter? You? I know it's an old game and everything, but... You? Kendall had a new Nintendo for the vintage game. He wielded the controllers pretty well for an old guy. Jared beat him, but only barely. As they played, Kendall said casually, So, how's everything going? Like what? Gotcha! Like, have you attempted any wizardry? Cut the crap, man. All right. How's school? He said it in such a fake, prissy tone that Jared had to laugh. Then he didn't. Throwing down the controller in mid-game, abruptly he stood. I gotta go. School's not going well? Nothing's going well, thanks to you guys. Jared shouted before he knew he was going to say anything at all. Sean won't hang with me, and the rest is just crap, and— Sean is avoiding you? Kendall said. What about the other kids? None of your business. Now let me out of here. The door is that way, Kendall said calmly, and you're welcome for dinner. But Jared was already halfway out the front door, yanking up his collar against the rain, furious at something. Everything. Come back whenever you like, Kendall called after him. I've got Super Smash Brothers, too. He went back. The first time back, he planned on breaking in and stealing the Nintendo, but Kendall was there, so he didn't, and they had dinner again, and played the Nintendo. 
and after that Jared didn't pretend there was still something wrong with his hand. Pretty soon he was there nearly every night. During the day he skated if the weather was sunny, hung out aimlessly at the mall if it wasn't, or watched TV at home if Ma wasn't there. Kendall never mentioned wizard stuff again. The food was always good, and after a few weeks Jared started doing the dishes. Sometimes they played Nintendo, sometimes Jared watched TV while Kendall read. Jared wasn't much of a reader, but the house was warm. At 6.30, they always had to stop and watch the news on TV. If there was an earthquake, or a flood, or a story about some farming problem, Kendall leaned forward intently, his hands on his knees. On a cold night in November, when Jared knew the heat was off at home, he stayed the night in the guest room. At 4 a.m., with Kendall asleep, Jared prowled the house, not to steal anything, just to look for... something. In a drawer of the dining room china cabinet, under a pile of tablecloths, he found the picture. It was totally weird. A group of seventeen people who didn't look like they belonged together. A heavy, middle-aged woman in brown stretch pants and a pink top. A man in a blue uniform with a square badge like a security guard. Two kids, seven or eight, who looked like twins, in miniature gang clothing. An old woman in some kind of long gown. A black man in a gray suit holding a briefcase. A guy in one of those lame Hawaiian shirts grinning like an idiot. An Asian kid holding an armful of books. And... Sean. Jared stared at the picture. It really was Sean. But what was this group? It sure as hell wasn't Sean's family. Would you like some coffee? Jared whirled around. Kendall stood in the doorway in some old guy pajamas. He didn't look mad, just that sad thing, which was getting really old. Who are these guys? Why is Sean here? I just put the water on, Jared. Come into the kitchen. Jared stood beside the kitchen table, refusing to sit down, while Kendall puttered with the tea kettle and instant coffee. I asked you a question. Who are those people? Is that your dumbass brotherhood? You remembered that I mentioned them, Kendall said with pleasure. I didn't know if you would. You were still on painkillers. I'm not stupid, man. I know you're not. And no, that's not the Brotherhood. That's the other side. Other side of what? Makes sense. Kendall poured hot water into his cup, stirred it, and sat across the table. Jared, didn't you think it odd that Sean avoided you after your accident? Instead of thinking it rather cool that you could command rocks? Rather cool, Jared mocked viciously. Command rocks! Come on, give me an answer! What's Sean doing with those people? He's one of them. And he had no idea you were a wizard, too, until the car hit you. And now he's staying away from you, so you won't inadvertently discover what he is. You see... That's our main advantage over the other side. We know a lot more about them than they know about us. Us? I thought you said you wasn't a wizard. I'm not, but I work with them. Pain releases the power, remember? I'm a doctor. I see a lot of pain. Sometimes it brings us one of our own, sometimes one from the other side. My position at the medical center is how we've been able to identify so many of them. I don't believe any of this crap. Fortunately, your believing or not believing does not change the reality. 
Kendall sipped his coffee. I wish belief was all it took to make the other side disappear. The other side? Give me a break! And what are they supposed to be doing that's so bad? What have you got against Sean? They think he's going to set off a bomb or something? I already told you magic doesn't operate in the presence of metal, which bombs require. Magic is considerably older than that. It belongs to the sphere of nature, of grass and wind and animals and plants. And rocks, the oldest of all nature. Right, sure, so Sean's going to mess up the world by growing the wrong grass? Get real. Abruptly, Kendall leaned forward. You get real, Jared. Your ignorance is appalling. What are they teaching you in that school? Yes, the other side might mess up the world by growing the wrong grass, if there's profit in it. Money or power, profit. Don't you know that there's money to be made from drought, from famine, from hurricanes, from killer bees, from mutated plants? There's always money to be made in disasters. You cause them, then you charge heavily to clean them up, as just one example. You're poised and ready with whatever is needed because you know exactly when and where the disaster will occur, and no one ever suspects you caused it because hurricanes and volcanoes and droughts and invasive plant species are all completely natural. Plus, no one in the developed countries where money flows like green water even believes in magic anyway. Now do you get it? No! Jared shouted. You're telling me Sean is rich from this magic? Man, he doesn't even have a decent deck! No, because riches now would draw attention to the other side, and it takes a lot of international coordination to pull off a big profit from a major disaster. They've already managed a couple of small ones. Did you read in the paper about that unexpected flood along the Big Thompson River in Colorado? No, of course you didn't. You don't read the papers. But we think that flood was one of theirs. We're still organizing, too. One day, Sean will be very rich and very powerful, although most of the world will never know how he did it. The FBI will assume drugs and spend futile years trying to prove it. So now you can see the future, too. No, of course not. I just... You're just full of crap, you crazy man. You know that? Biggest loser ever, and this sucks. Jared jerked at the locks on the kitchen door, yanked it open, and bolted outside. Jared, wait. Don't. He was already gone, skimming along the cold sidewalk in the dark. The man was more than crazy. He was totally gone. Psycho. Loony bin. Jared was never going back there. Where else was he going to go? Jared shivered. Last evening's rain had stopped, but it was really cold out. His hoodie wasn't enough for this weather. He had to move faster, stay warm, get home. Home. The heatless apartment where Ma and her new boyfriend would be sleeping under all the blankets, including Jared's, or, worse, up-fighting, strung out on Crystal. And getting home alone this time of almost morning when only the gangbangers were out on the streets? He stopped under a streetlight. For one terrible minute, he thought he might cry. Bag that. And bag all the psycho stuff Kendall had been telling him, too. The old man had been kind to him, so what if he was crazy? He wasn't dangerous. And it wasn't like Jared hadn't dealt with worse. He could deal with anything he had to. And Kendall's place was warm and had food. Why had Sean reacted so weird to Jared's accident? He spun his board around and skated back to Kendall's, thinking hard. The back door to Kendall's house still stood wide open, 
In the kitchen, the chairs were knocked over, and Kendall's coffee sloshed all over the floor. Blood smeared the table. Jared searched the whole house. Kendall was gone. He found a flashlight in the kitchen drawer and took it outside. Fresh tire marks slashed across a corner of the soggy lawn. They led down Carter Street, but where after that? He should call the cops. Ugh, like the cops would believe in the kidnapping. If an adult went missing, they wouldn't even start looking for him for a couple of days. And they certainly wouldn't believe Jared, who had a bunch of citations, unpaid, for illegal skating at the Civic Center and the library. It was only after he thought all this that Jared saw what it meant. That he believed Kendall had been kidnapped, and by the so-called other side. The second he realized this, he started shaking. Cold, he thought. It's just the cold, just the cold. In the dark, he skated to one end of the block, peered down at nothing, the other end of the block. Also nothing. No one else had been as good to him as Kendall had. Nobody. Not ever. There was no way to know which way the psychos had taken Kendall. No real way, unless... Jared looked around with his flashlight. The house next door to Kendall had a flower bed edged with stones. Feeling like the biggest lame brain in the whole crappy world, Jared picked up three of the rocks and thought, Which way? Nothing happened, so he said it out loud. Which way? Nothing happened. He stepped away from his deck with his metal trucks and tried again. Nothing. His hoodie had a metal zipper, so, shivering, he took it off and laid it on top of the deck, twenty feet away. Which way, you psycho stones? Nothing. His jeans had a metal zipper and studs. No way, Jared said aloud, but a second later, shivering, he stripped them off and put them on top of his hoodie. In his underwear, shoes and socks, and t-shirt, he scanned the street. Nobody there. It was four-thirty in the morning. He picked up the rocks again. Which way, you little bastards? The rocks grew warm in his hand. Jared shrieked and dropped them. A sharp pain shot through his wrist, gone in a moment. The stones fell in a straight line towards the north end of Carter Street. Jared stared, disbelieving. He did it again, this time facing south. The rocks got warm, he dropped them, and they swirled around his body to form a line going north. The sharp pain hit his wrist. He closed his eyes. No way. This psycho stuff doesn't happen. All at once he would have given anything, anything in the entire world, to be back skating at the Civic Center with Sean, ollieing off the steps and trying to do grinds down the rail, trying to land a 540 flip. Instead, he picked up his clothing and the three rocks, got on his deck, and skated north. At the next intersection, he again walked away from the board and jeans and hoodie, and said, Which way? The rocks pointed east. Two more turns, and he was glad to see the interstate. No turns off it for a long ways. His wrist throbbed from the repeated flashes of pain. Jared put his jeans and hoodie back on. His legs felt like ice. Not a good way to skate. But he wasn't going to do any tricks, just straight skating, and the speed would warm him. He skated up the on-ramp, then along the highway, dodging the trucks that blatted angry horns at him, keeping a sharp eye out for cops. At the first exit, he got off the highway and did the stones thing. They told him to get back on. 
Jared glanced at the sky, worried. Already it was starting to get red in the east. He put on his clothes and skated back onto the highway. His stomach grumbled and he cursed at it, at Kendall, at the world. At the next exit, the stones told him to follow a deserted stretch of country road. Jared noted its name. County Line Road. The house wasn't far, fortunately. The third house, set back in the woods. A white van with muddy tires sat in the driveway. The van said, McClellan Security. Jared remembered the man in the blue uniform in the picture. He crept up to the house. All the curtains were shut and the basement windows painted black. But when he put his ear to the grimy glass, Jared could hear noises in the basement. A thud, a groan, then... Once more, Doctor. All the names, please. Now. This is getting boring. Silence. Then Kendall screamed. They were torturing him to get the Brotherhood names, including Jared's name. You see, that's our main advantage over the other side. We know a lot more about them than they know about us. That's what Kendall had said, but now... No, not Jared's name. They already had Jared's name, thanks to Sean. And if Jared had stayed five minutes longer at Kendall's house, they'd have him down in that basement, too. He could skate away, get back on the highway, never go home again, go... Where? Kendall screamed again. A rage filled Jared. He thought he'd been angry before. At Sean, at his mother, at the cops, at the crap that happened and went on happening and never seemed to stop. But it hadn't been anger like this. This was the mother of angers, the huge one, the serious hang-time-in-orbit of anger. Woods bordered the back of the house. Jared thrashed a little way into them, shoved his deck under some bushes, added his jeans and hoodie. Then he stood there, twigs scratching his bare legs and some kind of insects biting at his face, and closed his eyes. He pictured rocks. All kinds of rocks, all sizes, pointy and smooth and rough, smashing through the black-painted basement windows and into the heads of every single bastard down there except Kendall. He pictured the blood and the wounds and the... Jared screamed. Pain tore through his whole body, dropping him into the bushes. His arms and legs were on fire. He was going to die. He would never skate again. The pain vanished, leaving him gasping. He staggered to his feet, just in time to see the rocks homing in on the house, flying in from every direction like fighter jets on some video game, but real and solid as Jared himself. All the painted windows smashed, and Jared heard yells and screams from the house. Then silence. It couldn't have happened. It did happen. He struggled out of the bushes and ran to the front door. It was locked, and so was the back door. Finally, he ran to the closest busted window, knocked out the glass still stuck around the edges, and slid into the basement, careful to land on his sneakers amid the shards and splinters of glass. Two men and a woman lay bleeding on the floor, covered with stones. Kendall was tied to a chair, gaping at him. The old man had a gash on his forehead and serious blood on the arm of his pajamas. Jared picked up the knife somebody had dropped and cut Kendall's ropes. He doubled over, gasping, and Jared was afraid Kendall was having a heart attack or something. But then he straightened and staggered to his feet. Jared, I'm all... all right. Sure you are. Never better, right? Come on. Jared helped him up the stairs, but then didn't know what to do next. Kendall did. He gasped. Go back. 
downstairs and get a cell phone from anyone who has one. Be careful. They're not dead. Don't kill anybody, Jared. We don't want a murder investigation. Then come back up here and lock the door at the top of the stairs. Jared did as he was told, a sudden sick feeling in his stomach. It fought with a feeling of unreality. This can't be happening. That only got stronger when he again saw all the stones lying around the basement. He'd done that. Him. Jared Stoffel. Kendall called somebody on the cell and said, Code Blue. The address is... And looked at Jared. Jared gave it to him. They only had to wait a few minutes before a car screeched up and they went out to meet it. A silver Mercedes S, at least seventy grand. Jared blinked. A pretty black girl jumped out. She had on a school uniform like rich girls wore, green skirt and jacket and a little green tie on a white blouse. Ordinarily, Jared hated kids like that. Rich snobs, but now it was different. He did it? She said, talking to Kendall but staring at Jared, her eyes wide. How did... I don't know yet, Kendall said. How much... I hadn't told them anything yet, but I would have, Denise. She nodded, grimaced, and tenderly helped Kendall into the car, apparently not caring that he got blood on the leather seat. Jared climbed into the back. Denise must be old enough to drive, he figured, but she didn't look it. Was the Mercedes hers? Or family's? Or maybe stolen? She pulled the car onto the road and accelerated hard. Over her shoulder, Denise threw Jared a glance at once respectful and a little scared. He sat up straighter in the back seat. She said, Stones? Yeah, Jared said. We don't have anybody that can do stone. He liked the tone of her voice. It let him say, What do you do? Wind, but strictly small time. You're gifted, dude. You ain't seen nothing yet. You should see me skate. In the front seat, one arm cradled carefully in the other, Kendall smiled. No, Larson said. Absolutely not. He wore his do-rag again, and it looked, Jared thought, just as dumb as the first time. Larson himself looked furious. I don't think we have a choice, said the older woman in a business suit. Probably she'd been getting dressed for work when they pulled up, just like Denise had been getting ready for school. This house must be the woman's. It looked like something the business lady would have. Nice, but really boring. Light brown rugs, brown furniture, tan curtains. The lady acted like she was in charge. Trouble was, Larson acted in charge, too. Jared thought they'd square off for a fight, but things didn't work like that around here. We do have a choice, Anna, Larson said. That was her name, Anna. There's a number of cities we could send them to. Jared said sharply, Send? You mean me in the dock? Nobody's sending me no place. Anna said, I'm afraid we have to, Jared. The other side now knows about both of you. They'll eliminate you if they can, and we might not be able to protect you. Oh, right. You can't just put a spell around my house or something? No, I guess you're not real wizards after all. A voice behind him said, I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. And Jared spun around. Denise, back from parking the car someplace. If he'd known she was coming back, he wouldn't have sounded so snotty. She said to Jared, 
I can do wind magic, and Anna can communicate with wild animals, and so on. But only when we're present at the scene, Jared. There's no such thing as a spell that can just be left in place to guard someone. I wish there was. If anybody else had explained it like that to Jared, he wouldn't have felt so stupid now. Kendall was off in a back room of his house, getting patched up or something. Jared crossed his arms over his chest and scowled. I can't just leave and, like, move to some other city. I've got mom, school, and crap. Larson said brutally, If you don't go, you're dead, and some of us, the ones you can identify, will be with you. But my ma— We'll be told that you've been taken away from her by Child Protective Services. She'll believe that. Jared felt hot blood rush into his face. Sir Larson knew all about his mother. Furious and embarrassed, he turned to slam out of the room, but Denise blocked the doorway. Larson said, We don't need to send him to Tellerton. Send him somewhere else, to a non-active cell. We don't need a kid this angry in the very center of the Brotherhood. I disagree, Anna said. No one will be able to control him. He'll endanger everybody there. I won't endanger nobody I don't want to, Jared said. Anna said, I think that's true, Larson, and Nick will be with him. Denise, still standing in the doorway, spoke in a low voice that only Jared could hear. I know it's hard to be sent away, but Anna's right. You'll have Dr. Kendall with you, and the place you're going? I know for a fact it has an awesome skate park. It does? The best. He blurted, Will you come there to see me skate? And instantly hated himself. She was too old for him. She would think he was a little kid. She'd shame him in front of Larson. Sure. I think that one way or another we'll end up working together anyway. Things are going to get much more serious soon. We'll need every wizard we can get. And we don't have a good stone man. You're really talented. That was the second time she'd said that. Jared turned back to Anna, ignoring Larson. Okay, I'll go. Where's Tellerton? In Virginia. Jared blinked. I... Zack will drive you both down there this afternoon. The sooner you get out, the better. My stuff! I have... It has to stay here. They'll get you new belongings in Tellerton. Don't worry, Jared. You're one of us now. Anna left. Larson said, Wait a minute, Anna. I want to talk more with you about the hurricane. He strode after her. Jared was left alone with Denise. He blinked, scowled, and said, to say something, What hurricane? It was on the early morning news, Denise said somberly. A big hurricane suddenly changed direction and came ashore in Florida, and the hurricane season is supposed to be over. Eight people dead so far. At least one big warehouse was destroyed that we found out had just been bought by the other side. Now they'll file all kinds of insurance claims on the stuff inside. Anna, one of our lawyers, just tracked the purchase in the warehouse insurance yesterday, but she hasn't had time to follow through. Jared tried to understand. Denise was smart. All these people were smart. And wizard stuff seemed to involve a lot of non-magic things like insurance claims, which Jared had never thought about. But one thing was clear to him. Part about eight people dead. So far... He said, They'd really do that? Kill, like, innocent people just to make money? They would. They do. He felt a little dizzy. 
too much stuff too fast. Wizards and magic and moving away and stones. He could still feel the rocks warm in his hands, ready to tell him things. Him, Jared Stoffel, who nobody except Sean had ever told anything. And Sean, the so-called friend he'd trusted like a brother. Sean's gonna pay, he said to Denise. Yes, Denise said, and that was what decided him. No lame bull about not being into revenge, or calming himself down, or being too angry a kid to be useful. Just, yes. She understood him. All at once, Jared felt like he'd just ollied off a twelve-set and was doing serious hang time in the air. A wizard. He was a wizard. He didn't want to be, but he was. A stone man. And everything was different now. Maybe that was a good thing. He could learn about insurance claims or whatever. He wasn't dumb. He had learned to do a back 180 down a four set. He could learn what he needed to. He could. Welcome to the Brotherhood, Jared, Denise said softly. Thanks, Jared said. sigh. One of my secret dreams, from way before those famous wizarding books came out. But somehow this one feels more real, you know? Anyhow, that brings us to the end of our show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, tell a friend or post about it on your blog or page. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling. Visit a crowdfunding website and see what's out there. Hmm. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.